Now, you'll know what this is that's about to hit your ears, but I think you may be surprised at the interpretation you're about to hear. Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, of course. The book of the film came out in 1936 and became an overnight success. The MGM film, which which smashed all records on its release three years later, uh, went on to win 10 Academy Awards. And to this day, it often appears on lists of best of films. But what was the film really all about? Can it tell us things about America today that transcend the usual analyses? Well, yes, it can tell us a lot according to our next guest. And it's a pretty scathing takedown that she makes of a work which she says is a justification for slavery and white supremacy and one which haunts American culture today. Sarah Churchwell is Professorial Fellow in American Literature. She's also Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of London. And her book is called The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. That's quite a subtitle, The Lies America Tells. You've looked at other myths in American life, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe. I wonder what triggered you to look so closely at Gone with the Wind? Well, I mean, I grew up with Gone with the Wind, right? So it's part of my kind of imaginative inheritance. I was obsessed with the film as a young girl. I loved the novel, thought it was so romantic, and I completely identified with Scarlett O'Hara, its central character. It's this very strong-willed uh, um, woman who's determined to, you know, get what she wants out of life no matter what <laughs> what gets in her way. And, um, and so uh, it's always been in my head. And then when, um, in the way Trump selection, when... When overt racism started to, you know, really make itself so noticeable, even white Americans like me could miss it um, in the United States. And I'm thinking particularly of of the um, far right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. Neo-Nazis were shouting literally blood and soil. Um, um, and there were people shouting Jews will not replace us as they fought to keep up the statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Um, and this controversy blew up around taking down the Confederate statues. And and then, you know, it went on for the next several years. And of course, in 2020, there was the, the terrible murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests that followed. And it just became really clear to me that if you wanted to understand all of this mess and all of this anger and violence and controversy, all of the complexities of American history, but also, as my subtitle says, the lies we tell about our history and how the conflict between the facts and the lies is really what's erupted in violence. It seems to me that although Gone with the Wind is a long book and a long movie, it's still a relatively efficient and compact way of coming at this huge complex of, of historical issues. Okay, and I will try to tease some of them out because, I mean, they're, they're big claims. Let's set the scene a little bit around Gone with the Wind. It came out first as a novel, which I have to say I absolutely adored as a teenager and, and can remember it. My mother calling me to dinner and I wouldn't put it down. <laughs> um, what sort of world did the author Margaret Mitchell come from? 
So Margaret Mitchell was born in 1900 and she died in 1949. So exactly the first half of the 20th century. And she, her grandmother um, had been born on a, a slave plantation. Her grandmother uh, was the daughter of a rich Irish immigrant. Uh, in fact, her grandmother was the model for Scarlett O'Hara. And so she had grown up uh, wealthy and pampered. Uh, enslaving people, and she was part of the society that went to war to to defend and maintain their right to enslave other humans and to keep them in bondage. And and so Margaret Mitchell grew up with a grandmother telling her that that was you know that that was right and justifying it, rationalizing it, and romanticizing it, telling her how beautiful the old South had been and how the Yankees ruined everything when. And in this telling, they kind of spitefully and aggressively came down into the South to ruin everything. Um, and so, and, and the point is, that- can I interrupt you? What the point yeah, you please. make is that she and her class saw themselves as the victims. So whereas the rest of the world may have decided it was actually the black Americans who were the victims, they saw themselves, and I think your thesis is they still do see themselves as Absolutely. the victims of that. When white victimhood um, was invented in America... Gone with the Wind captures the telling of that story, which began with the aftermath of the Civil War and the justification of slavers, uh, enslavers like Margaret Mitchell's grandparents. And so they, the white Southerners began to tell this story about, um, about how, as you say, how they were the victims of all of this. They were the ones who had their property stolen, their way of life ruined, and they would do everything that they could to reclaim it and rebuild it and always saw it as their right. They, You'll remember this because you love the novel. Scarlett O'Hara never questions her right to any of this. She never questions her right to have Tara. And that's really what drives the story. And yes, and I'm saying that that sense of white entitlement is still very much present in American politics today. Let's go back a bit to the end of the Civil War and you're very good in the way you sort of say, let's have um, uh, dates, you know, that help people, that that ground people. So it's 1861 to 1865. After the war ended, it was the beginning of what is known as the lost cause, which you introduced me to. I have to say, I'd never heard that phrase. What exactly is this? Yeah. So the Lost Cause is quite famous in the United States, but I'm not surprised that you haven't heard of it. And um, But it, it really dominated 20th century interpretations of how white people across the country in the North and the South thought about the war. And the, the so the Lost Cause was was an apology for slavery. It was this worldview that I just described, that the, that the, that the South, uh, during slavery, the antebellum South was a gentle, peaceful place where, um, and it it said that slavery was a benevolent institution that was welcomed by the enslaved who were better off under the protection of white people than they would have been under freedom. And it got this name, the Lost Cause, as a, as a nostalgic justification after the war was lost of saying, well, we may have lost, but it was noble. It was a defense of a noble way of life. And the Confederate um, army was full of noble soldiers fighting for a noble cause. And it may have been lost, but, you know, we gave it our all. And so it, it was a massive project in faith saving and enabling, and and this is really, really important because the country had to come back together after the Civil War. So there had to be a way for the White South to not just politically be readmitted, but psychologically be readmitted. And that mattered for the White North as well. So there had to be a story in which everybody was okay, in which there, there couldn't be, you couldn't say, well, actually, you're really morally in the wrong here, but you're also going to be part of the country. So there was a huge debate, just to give one example, about whether White Southerners, 
Harris, who had led a treasonous uh, insurrection against the United States, um, should they be allowed to vote in future elections? Should they be allowed to hold office in future elections? Well, this is a question that's being asked very actively in the United States right now for a reason, because it's a good question. You just led a treasonous war against this government. Should you be part of this government? And so those questions were really, really complex. And what happened was this myth of the lost cause grew up to make everybody feel okay about it and to say, well, actually, it wasn't really that bad, was it? it there was just this unfortunate outbreak of violence, but let's all move along. And there were no there were no bad guys here. And we can all come back together and rebuild on this um, this pretense that we are now a full democracy when, in fact, the country was anything but. And your thesis is that this is when this sort of southern exceptionalism um, spread, which played into older American exceptionalism myths, which I think, you know, we all sort of see as very... Um, and you've got this interesting phrase, which regard America as perennially innocent, as if exempt from history. Now, that's very interesting. What are you getting at there? Well, I mean that as if as if history has no consequences, as if you can always be innocent no matter what you do, and as if you can just keep moving on and say, oh, well, you know, we, well, we meant well, so, you know, this is going to be fine. And and America is not always innocent. And, and I say that as an American who loves my country, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't done terrible things both within its borders and without. And many other nations have had reckonings with their own terrible past. And the United States keeps refusing to do that in any kind of concerted way. And this was at this this is one of the most extreme examples, but it's the one we think about the least, which is the, the idea that America is so innocent that even our version of slavery was good, is what this story actually says. It says that, that, that like this slavery... Mammy, Mammy being the classic example, Hattie McDaniel, exactly. who, who, that, who that won they, the Oscar. Exactly. Mm. But who wasn't Sorry, allowed to ahead. actually... She, Selznick, David Selznick, the producer, had to pull strings to get her in. To, she wasn't... It, because segregation applied at the time. Exactly, right? So this is the perfect example of the hypocrisy and, and the, 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 the lies embedded in it. So this is a society saying slavery has enacted no consequences on our society whatsoever. Everything's great and hunky-dory, except, oh, yes, there is racial segregation and Hattie McDaniel can't sit at the same table with the white cast while she becomes the first African-American to win an Oscar. Mm -hmm. So the black cast is being you know, forced through the indignity of pretending that there's nothing wrong and that everything was fine, even as they're living with the consequences of the story Pretending that everything's fine, you know, now, and so it's really let, let me just ask you this though, because I, I'm really quite foggy about the specifics. Do you think the North, the victorious North, did they make any mistakes here? Because you had this extraordinary aftermath um, of the war, with, with all sorts of rights being given to people who'd been slaves, and while we may say now that was obviously fair and just, but did, was, it, was it too much too fast? It's a very difficult question, but did it start to, did it stir this exceptionalism? Well, I don't think it exactly stirred the exceptionalism, but it, it certainly proved to be too much too fast. Now, I tend to look at it the other way around, which is to be proud of, of the United States for trying something so audacious as to go from a society based on race-based slavery to full multiracial democracy in the space of a few years. And I, when I say a few years, I mean like three years. And that's extraordinary, right? Um, but, you're, but you're right, it didn't work. So the North absolutely has a huge part to play in this. So what happened basically was that the... Um, 
for all kinds of reasons, but the most important of which is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865. Um, he was succeeded by a white supremacist Southerner president, Andrew Johnson, the first president to be impeached. And that changed the course of everything because Johnson uh, pardoned the entire white South and gave all of the land back to white slave to white enslavers and basically allowed them to rebuild all of the foundations of the racial hierarchy of slavery. So it was basically slavery in all but name. And that was what created the possibility for Jim Crow. They denied black people the franchise. They locked them up in mass numbers. It, mass incarceration starts at that point. Um, there are any number of, of atrocities. There's an enormous amount of violence. The first Ku Klux Klan the contested the Klan, of course, elections. was formed in 1865, wasn't it? The end of 1865. Exactly. Exactly. So the first Ku Klux Klan was formed precisely to deny black people the franchise, explicitly and overtly to stop them from voting, which is something that um, not enough people uh, recognize. And then what How happened was the that? white... It, weren't the central government, couldn't... Didn't they have a central government that would stop that? They did. And so that's what happened was the, the first Ku Klux Klan was wiped out by the federal government in 1871. And, and, and that's, it's a, it's a complex story, but it's a really important one. And that was under the, um, presidency of, of Ulysses S. Grant, um, who was an abolitionist and did believe in, uh, in multiracial democracy. But the problem was that the, the, the power, to put it briefly, the power structures of the white South were, to your point about going too fast, too soon, they, it was, um, it, it, they they just they were too entrenched and it without another civil war basically it wasn't going to go away so these battles kept breaking out by proxy and eventually what ha- with with white supremacist groups like the Klan there was huge violence in the streets so they wipe out the Klan as an organization they couldn't wipe out white supremacism because that's what everybody in the South believed and a lot of well, people in the North was Ashley you know Ashley from Gone with the Wind. Ashley was a was a, I think a leader of the Klan, and Rhett, Rhett um, yeah. sympathised but didn't join. He didn't join the Klan, but he's in prison when Scarlett visits him in her phase, fa- famous green curtain dress in a Yankee prison. <laughs> he's in prison for lynching a black man. Not oh, he's not a prisoner of war. He's there for lynching a black man. So he's a white supremacist. He's just too much of an individualist to join the Klan. And he's a really good example of why they couldn't wipe it out. They could wipe out the Klan, but they couldn't wipe out men like Rhett Butler who were walking around lynching black men across the South. And that's what was happening. So eventually what happened was there was a, there, there was a contested election in 1876 and, and very, very long and complex story short, the North made a compromise and they withdrew the federal troops from the South in order to get a Republican president, Rutherford B. Hayes, installed. And at that point, black people still, rightly in my view, see this as a huge betrayal by the North. And basically the North withdrew and left black Americans in the South to their own devices and left the white South to create the local laws that would let them, that became Jim Crow and would let them reinstate white supremacism. And the well, North they just basically made legal infringement. They, they re-legalized, didn't they? All sorts of bylaws were used. I mean, I've seen this, a very good doc- documentary on this. And they basically, um, by using the law, they got black people back into chains. Precisely. They did one way and another, right? Mm. Through mass incarceration, through chain gangs. They had, there was a, there was a system of debt peonage where you could, you could, you could, a black man could be imprisoned for, you know, dicing, right? So he's, you know, gambling on the streets. You lock him up for 30 bucks and he doesn't have the 30 bucks to free himself. But a farmer could go pay the $30 and release him into indentured servitude until he had worked off the $30. But nobody agreed how long, how many hours he had to work to work off the $30. So he's picking cotton again. Yeah, he's picking cotton again for the same guy, for the same man. 
That's the point. My guest on Saturday Extra is Sarah Churchwell, and she's written this really quite uh, fascinating book called The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. It is an extraordinary, well, this is your thesis. How, how have people reacted? How have Americans reacted to this, by the way? <laughs> well, it's, it's not out in America yet. So oh. It's only just been released in the UK and only just been released. So it's just coming out. So um, we shall see. I had a very nice interview with, uh, with an African-American in um, uh, for CNN who was the first um, African-American who's read it since it was published. So I was, of course, very interested in his um, reaction to it. And I'm happy to say that he liked it, but we'll see what, we'll see what other people think. Mm. Well, I mean, how do you call this Confederate propaganda? I mean, it, there's some amazing things that you do. Um, uh, you know, it's very confronting. You say, for instance, one of the things, just to give listeners the sense, um, that you think just people uh, haven't grasped how much they've been influenced by this book and, 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 you know, other related myths, and they might choose to go to a reconstituted old plantation to have their wedding you know, this is all supposed to be gorgeous and fun. And you, you say, look, it's sort of like saying, I want to go have, be married in Dachau, you know. Exactly. <laughs> like tra- I mean, it's, it they, is you're... like saying that. So it's a, it's a romantic... It's sort of, so you, you believe it's really populated the imag- imagination of Americans in ways they don't grasp. Is that it? Yes, that's absolutely it. And I think that because, again, back to that point about innocence, it's enabled us to think that it wasn't really that bad. And so to think, well, you know, we know they were enslaved, but let's not think about that. And let's just, you know, and that was too bad, but that's over. And we can go, we can cherry pick our history and go enjoy the pretty romantic parts and dress up like enslavers, but not, but not actually stop and think about the fact that we are cosplaying as enslavers at our wedding. And that that's actually what you're doing. So it is like wearing a Nazi uniform at your wedding. That is what it is like because it was a system built on, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, human, I mean, it's human bondage. I mean, we all know what slavery is. I don't have to explain that, right? No. So, but it's, and, it's and, and so are you saying that, talk about it. that in effect, this uh, attitude, set of underlying attitudes went right through to Martin Luther King in the civil rights time, that they were only sort of really pegged back then. Is that what you're really saying, is it? Absolutely. And it's only a couple of generations away. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is that the night before the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta in 1939, which you mentioned, um, they had a gala ball for all of white Atlanta. Black Atlanta, of course, was not invited. It was a segregated city. And the performance um, that one of the performances was of a, of a church choir of boys, um, boys from the local church choir, uh, a little African-American boys, and they dressed them as slaves and had them sing for the pleasure of the white crowd. And one of the boys in that choir was 10-year-old Martin Luther King Jr., Truly, it, is that it, right? It, yes, uh-huh. It was a direct line. Hattie McDaniel was the daughter of enslaved people. So it was a direct line only a couple of generations away. And that's partly what I'm trying to remind people of. Donald Trump was born six years after Gone with the Wind started making its way across the country. This history is very much alive in the minds of all of these people. And some people might remember that when Parasite a couple of years ago became the first South Korean film and the first foreign language film to win Best Picture, um, Donald Trump said, why don't we have movies like Gone with the Wind anymore? Why can't we get movies like that back? It's in his imaginative inheritance too. So this is, this is absolutely the through line is that, is, and, and politicians will talk about it today. I mean, that we have um, legislatures, uh, local legislatures across the United States who are going back to not wanting to teach about slavery. They're calling it enforced immigration. 
and they're no, calling they're it not, servitude. Are they? Is that true? they are. They are right now. Absolutely. I will send you and your listeners the the, the journalism about this. It is happening right now, and they are saying, "Well, we don't want to teach about slavery because that will upset our children and make them feel guilty." And that's what I mean about the perennially innocent. They say, "Well, we don't want to teach them about racism because why should they feel guilty for what other people did?" And slavery is long over. And anyway, it's kind of in bad taste to bring up. And you know, we know it happened, but why are you dwelling on the past? And all of these ways of trying to deny that there is anything there that we need to have a reckoning with. And and in my view, the violence that we're facing right now is that is part of that deferred reckoning. Yeah, and of course, the Confederate flag was used, as you point out, in the January the 6th insurgency uh, in the Capitol, which is incredible. Exactly. And that's the moment I opened my book with. It's totally symbolic of, of the whole story I'm telling. Look, I mean, finally, so what does one do with this book? Never give it to, you know, my grandchildren coming up or, <laughs> you know, talk about it like this and obviously read your book as well. I mean, it, it was <laughs> the love story got to me, I think, as much as anything yeah. else. And she is extraordinary. It is Irish part of, you know, I know that that Irish connection to land and everything. is so I sort of, oh, well, it, it's a pity to lose it. Well, I think so too. Look, I'm, I'm a professor of literature. I'm not in the business of getting rid of books or, or banning them. I, I, I think that everybody should read more. But look, we have a lot of problematic stories from, you know, old cultures that we still read and we just contextualize them for our children and our students. And we explain, you know, Shylock mm. is an anti-Semitic character. That doesn't mean that we don't perform the Merchant of Venice. Um, the problems of, of racial depiction in Othello, we still, we, but we deal with it. We talk about it. We ask questions about it and we recognize the power of the play. Now, I'm not putting Gone with the Wind in the same caliber with um, Shakespeare, to be clear. I loved it too, but not that much. Um, but I'm not saying we get rid of it, and I'm not saying we can't like the things about it we like. I still like Scarlett O'Hara. And actually, on rereading Gone with the Wind, I'll say that one of, the, one of its um, qualities that gets overlooked is how funny it is. Margaret Mitchell had a really acidic sense of humor, and she's, she's, she's quite sharp about a lot of aspects of her society. It's just that she has these massive racist blinders. And what I'm saying is that we can't compartmentalize that. We can't just say, oh, it's racist, but... And then mm. read it, because what I'm saying is the racism is intertwined in all of it. So I think at a minimum, we have to say it's racist and. And we have to we have to own that and think about it and think about how it relates to everything else that's in the story. And we can admire the white feminism of the story, but not without recognizing the way that it's purchased at the cost of black equality. And we have to think about those two things together, it seems to me. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much. I have mo enjoyed that immensely. Thank you for speaking to us. Likewise. Thank you so much. Sarah Churchwell uh, from uh, the University of London. Her book is called The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. It's published by Head of Zeus Press. One of our listeners said Margaret Mitchell was 10 before she actually learned that the South had lost. <laughs> That'll leave you thinking. Well, up next, uh, setting up consular help for Australians overseas. <laughs> Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.